right, guys. Well, thank you guys for, uh, we got a, we got a big house in here tonight, uh, or today. Uh, so glad to see everybody. Uh, you know, God brings a lot of different people to this classroom. It's, it's been interesting. It's just been in here for a couple of years now. Uh, I've gotten to see a lot of just different people use different spiritual gifts for different purposes uh, for people other than themselves. And we've got an interesting guy who's been in our class, uh, a guy named Scott Sambar. Scott, can you raise your hand real quick? He wouldn't want me to raise his hand, but Scott has been given an interesting gift. Scott has studied ancient literature and ancient languages, and he is a fantastic writer. And so a couple months ago, he and I were talking about Ruth, and uh, he offered to uh, write a poem to kick off this series. I want to start off this new study in Ruth by just reading this poem aloud to you guys. I think it does a great job of helping us understand the overall frame of this story. So let me read this. Ruth gave a gift, standing tall the gift of herself to her mother-in-law. In In a far-off land, Naomi lost it all. Her husband, her sons, a tremendous fall. Returning to Judah, God's beloved land, they both came home to sweet Bethlehem. Ruth did glean in Boaz's wheat, desperate widows needing food to eat. But Boaz knew of Naomi and Ruth, that pure in heart they lived God's truth. With no hope ahead, a redeemer came to give them succor forever named. Ruth bore a son that Naomi did feed. Through line of David, Christ was her seed. Ruth and Boaz, a gift of light, redeemed, redeemer, banishing the night. A gentlewoman, a goodly wife, her small role did play, bringing all true life. I just want to thank you, Scott, for that. Um, well done, sir. I've been really excited to get into this study of Ruth. I've been thinking about it for a long time, and and uh, researching for a long time on this. And, and and a lot of the lessons we've been covering the last four or five weeks have really just been precursors to get us to this story of Ruth. And what I really want us to be able to focus on as we go through these the, the book of Ruth for the next five, six weeks is what does it truly mean to be known by love? It's something we're talking about a lot as a church. I sent it out in the email I sent to you guys. What does it mean to be known by love? And I think this story gives a great explanation of that with many, many layers as we get into it. But to kick it off today, I want you guys to have just a couple minutes at your table to talk about this topic and to, to, to really, really get into the conversation. I wanted to use one of the best modern day, modern day philosophers that we have, a guy named Sir Paul McCartney. And I don't know why my mind always goes to Beatles references, but it does. So we're going to start with Sir Paul McCartney, who said these words. He said, and in the end... The love you take is equal to the love you make. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. My question to you guys to debate at the tables, is that a true statement or a false statement? Talk about it and we'll come back. All right, I'll bring it back in. Does anyone, anyone have a uh, suggestion on this one? Is that a true statement? The love you take is equal to the love you make. Is true statement or false statement? Anyone have an opinion? I'm going to go to our... Godless here. Mr. Bennett, the godless scholar, Mr. Bennett. Well, I just was thinking, if we get to the end of our life and we get the same amount of love back that we've given our whole life, talking about God, then we're in a world of hurt. Yep. I'm up. And then, and then also, you know, if, if we give more love than we're giving, getting back, and everybody does that, then the world looks like a pretty good place. But if we're trying to give less love than we're getting, then it's 
So you heard it here, Sir Paul McCartney is wrong, right? So for Mr. Bennett. Anyone else? Anyone want to go the other side of it? A true statement. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, you're you're always like five steps ahead of me. We'll we'll get there. Anyone anyone want to take the other side of that equation? You think it's a true statement? You want to go back to maybe a biblical passage about you know you reap what you sow and, and that sort of thing. I think there's some there's a kernel of truth in everything the Beatles say, uh, but as we talked about about two months ago, there's also some things that I might disagree with. This statement implies balance, right? It implies balance. It it's an equation that balances out, uh, and a lot of people think about love that way, uh, and and I'm, I very naturally think about love that way, and many times. I want to do a little bit of an experiment though for a second. You're going to have to bear with me on this one. Uh, I want everyone to the extent you can, as long as you're sitting down. Close your eyes for a second. Just give me a second close your eyes. And I want you to think about a time in your life or an experience or a person, whatever it may be, that is the truest form of love that you can imagine. Something that's been in your life that you just say, that is the best, most pure form of love that I have any experience with in my life. And just get that in your head for just a moment. And my question to you, and you just leave your, your, your eyes closed, in that example that you have, is there pain involved in that experience? Is there suffering involved in that experience? Is, is what you know of love, did that person who is exhibiting that love, was there pain and suffering on their end to help you understand that love? Raise your hands if that's the case. A lot of us can come back to us now. A lot of us will, will, will see that as we, as we truly understand love, it's a much more pure form than what the world may throw at us. The equation is normally not balanced. Uh, when it, what we see as love, what we've experienced as love in our life from our, from our parents, from our spouses, from, from brothers, sisters, friends, no matter who it may be, a lot of times what we see as love came from someone who endured massive pain or suffering to be able to demonstrate that love to us. That's normally what we harken back to. And if you guys look, a whole lot of you guys had your hands raised as we went through that experiment. What I want us to understand is that biblical love, true love, has no agenda. Uh, it requires nothing on the other side of the equation to be given. Absolutely nothing on the other side of the equation. Uh, I want us to talk a lot today about what love actually is. And we're going to use a very specific form of love uh, that's shown in the Bible that may be a bit foreign to us, uh, especially as Americans. We're going to talk about that today, but this entire uh, book of Ruth is just a fantastic example of what God actually wants from us uh, when it comes to love. So for us, you know, in particular, I want us to understand what love is, what it means to be known by love in terms of Christian men, right? Christian men, Christian leaders within our community. And to do that, what I, what I think we're going to have to do is try to strip away all that you currently think you know about love from all the other influences in our life. And a lot of you guys in here have been in your Bibles for decades and have a good foundation. Uh, but I know, I know I did not, right? It was, for me, uh, a lot of the con concepts in the Bible, I had to strip away everything I thought I knew so I could actually be built up on what God is truly trying to reveal to me. And if we could just, as we go through Ruth, try to come in with an open mind, try to come in with a, a blank slate, and if all you understood about love is what, what God reveals to us in his scripture in this, in this book, let that be our understanding of love. Allow the scripture to really challenge you uh, as we go through this. 
what we're going to find here in, in, in the next five, six weeks is three main characters we're going to dig into in this story. And we talked about them a little bit in the poem. Uh, we've got a woman named Naomi who's kind of the matriarch in this, in this story. And Naomi is a woman who has lost everything in her eyes. And we'll get into her today. Uh, we're going to talk about a woman named Ruth. Obviously, you would, you would hope we would talk about Ruth in the story of Ruth. Uh, we're going to talk about Ruth, who is a barren Moabite widow. And then we've got a guy named Boaz. Now, he's a man, and he happens to be an older man, uh, who is a pretty awesome example for us all to follow. Uh, we'll talk about that. And, and Boaz is from the town of Bethlehem. God uses each of these characters to do a really good job to teach us about his plan of redemption and to help us understand his love. And so as we get into Ruth, I want us to go back just for a minute uh, for this week, try to build up and help you understand why it is we've been teaching some of these lessons we've been teaching over the last four or five weeks. I want to I make sure we set the context properly for where we are in this time and where we are in this story. And if you remember about five weeks ago, we did a lesson on the Old Testament, just the entire Old Testament in 45 minutes. And we had three major principles we pulled out of the Old Testament for that lesson. The first one was that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There is no inconsistency. And we're going to see that here in this, in this book very, very clearly. Not only are we going to see examples of what it looks like to live like Christ, to love like Christ, but we're going to see Christ himself foretold in a very, very beautiful way. The second principle we learned in that lesson is that uh, the Old Testament is a critical piece of God's plan for redemption. And we're going to see that play out both physically and metaphorically uh, within this book. Very, very interesting way he uses these characters in his plan of redemption. And then the last one we learned is that God does not break his promises. And we, we really dove into that as we got into the story of Balaam. Right, if you remember, that, that story of Balaam occurred as God's people were getting to enter into the promised land. Uh, and the, the Moabite king, you know, Balak called upon Balaam, the, the pagan prophet, to come down and curse God's people. And God had made a promise to his people back in the time of Abraham and Moses that nobody was going to curse his people. And so not only was Balaam not able to curse God's people, he actually blessed God's people. And through that fourth oracle of Balaam, with the, the words God put into his mouth, uh, God used Balaam to actually deliver a prophecy, to deliver another promise of what was to come. He delivered a promise of a king that would come out of Israel. Uh, we're, we're referencing King David in that prophecy. And that prophecy goes further to even highlight the Messiah that would one day come. It's a very specific promise God gives his people through Balaam. And we're going to see that prophecy played out in the story of Ruth. But as we got past the time where God's people entered into the promised land, uh, we talked a little bit about how Joshua uh, went through and had all the military conquests across that area. And after the time of Joshua, after the 31 kings were defeated, you see God's people just kind of settle into the promised land. But not they didn't remove all of the Canaanites who had been there before. And so you start to see influences from the Canaanites creep in uh, to, the, to the people's just daily lives. Bill did a very good job last week. Bill did a very interesting job last week. That was a fascinating lesson, uh, but, but he did a very good job last week of helping us understand a guy named Ehud who was a judge. All right, so after Joshua, we get into the time of the judges, and Ehud was a guy who was raised up uh, to go and to fight the Moabites. Right, The Moabites had been coming in and uh, were controlling the Israelites as the Israelites had turned to apostasy and had kind of turned away from God. 
and all of the offering of grain that the Israelites were meant to be giving to God, sacrificing to God, they were giving to the Moabites. And we learned that the Moabites were fat, right? Fat and sturdy. Uh, and God put that language in there for a reason because the grain that was supposed to be being sacrificed to God was going straight to the Moabites. And we see Ehud be raised up as a judge to go in and defeat the Moabites and to bring peace into the land of Israel. That story occurs. Uh, and then after Ehud, what happens is we see uh, a reign of a judge named Deborah and we see another time frame pass. And so we get to about 120 years after that story of Ehud, and we get to another judge who gets raised up in Israel, a guy named Gideon. And uh, Jeff did a good job giving us a brief uh, illustration of Gideon whenever he taught about five or six weeks ago. Uh, and Gideon's the guy, the judge, we've all heard the story where he had, what, 30,000 30, men that got whittled down to 300 men so God could show his glory. Uh, but Gideon got raised up because more people were coming in and trying to steal the grain and, and, and the food of the, the people in Israel. Uh, this time, it's the Midianites who were trying to steal all the food and were really oppressing uh, the Israelites. And does anyone remember the Midianites? When, when did we talk about the Midianites a few weeks back? <coughs> anyone recall that? Or is it just me who really enjoys this Midianites and Moabites stuff? Is that pretty much just me? The Midianites were the people who banded together with the, uh, the Moab king Balak, uh, to bring down Balaam. And it was the Midianite women who seduced the Israelites uh, under the influence of Balaam. And if you recall, Moses leads kind of this holy charge into the Midianites and pretty much wipes them out. Right? So we still see all these people groups you know, with all this turmoil and strife between them. Uh, as God's people turn away from him, you see the Canaanites, you know, the, the, uh, the you know, people who were in the land before, come in and oppress the Israelites. And so and lately, it seems to all been revolving around food. We keep seeing that come up. So the Midianites are oppressing the Israelites, and Gideon is raised up to go and deal with that problem. This time of the judges is just a very unique time in Israel's history. There's no king. There's no supreme authority like Moses was or Joshua was. The, the 12 tribes of Israel have split up their land. They've all had their land allocated to them. And they're all kind of running almost a bit like states. You know, they're, they're very decentralized. Uh, you see some going one way, some going another. And there's no unified force in Israel. And in the book of Judges, you see this statement in Judges 21. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's why you see that apostasy occur. And you see people just really turning away from God. So at this time that Gideon is raised up is the time frame that the story Ruth occurs. So I want you to just put yourself in this context. It's been 120 years since Ehud was raised to go and fight the Moabites. But all the Israelites at this time know this history between the Moabites and the Israelites. You know, there's a lot of strife, a lot of animosity the Midianites are still really connected to the Moabites, and they're oppressing God's people as we speak. They're taking their food. I uh, just want to make sure you get yourself in that context. So the Midianites ra uh, raiding the land, and with God's people already being influenced by the local customs, you, know, you, you saw Bill talk about how people would put an Asherah pole up, you know, just because they said, well, my neighbor, you know, his crop yield increased when he put that Asherah pole up, so I'm going to do it as well. You see God's people kind of being influenced by those local customs. Um, 
we, we then see at this point in time our story start in a little town of Bethlehem. And you know that real quick, just a quick aside, that little town of Bethlehem song they sing at Christmas time all the time, uh, I really never paid attention to that until I went to Israel. And you guys can attest, it's a little bitty town of Bethlehem. I had no idea. I mean, they were actually being true. It's a little bitty village in the grand scheme of things that we see play out in such vivid detail. But that is where our story starts. Think about the oppression that's occurring. Think about the lack of food that's already there just because of the oppression. Think about all the animosity that's between the Israelites and the Moabites as this story starts. So if you can, turn to Ruth chapter 1 if you've got your Bibles with you. And I'm going to read aloud uh, to, get, to get this story going. But with our goal today being, we want, to help, we want to understand a form of love that God reveals to us very specifically in the Bible. We want, to, we want to trace through this text, go through this story, and help us really derive what it is God's <coughs> talking about with this type of love. So chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So not only are the Midianites oppressing them and they've got crop shortages because of that, there's an actual famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were, were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So just real quickly there, stopping with that verse, names in this culture, in this, uh, in this time, were much more significant than they are today. They had much more meaning than they do today. And all these names have a lot of meaning. So the very first name, Elimelech, uh, that name actually means, my God is king. My God is king. Uh, the name Naomi means sweetness and pleasant, which will, which will be important here later on in this story. Moab, the place of Moab, which we've talked so much about the last month, Moab is an interesting name. It means, who's your daddy, pretty much, or, or uh, of his father, right? But who's your daddy, I think, is a lot more fun to say. Uh, and, and does anyone remember how Moab was formed? Moab goes all the way back to an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter, right? So the of his father was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh, symbol to, to be used uh, for Moab. Uh, Malon, the, the, the very first uh, son who's in the story, that name means weak. And the other son, his name means frail. So if you were actually to read this first opening passage uh, with an understanding of those words, what you're going to see is that, that uh, a man whose name is my God is king left Bethlehem, right? Left Bethlehem to go to a place of, of, of your father and he took his wife, who was sweet and pleasant, and his two sons, who were weak and frail. And from there, they left Bethlehem. And even though Bethlehem is in a, a time of famine right now, Bethlehem, by its name, means house of bread. Right? House of bread. So it's just a bit, reality is almost mocking God in this very opening passage. Right? You've, you've got a famine that's occurring. These guys are leaving a place of God's blessing of Bethlehem, a place named House of Bread, to go to a place where grain is more abundant to a people who are not God's people who are stealing the blessing of God's people. So this is a pretty big deal. It's, it's not a small thing that uh, Elimelech and Naomi decide to leave Bethlehem to go into Moab. <laughs> The area of Moab where they go, 
you know, is about, um, if you think about Bethlehem, Bethlehem on a, on a map is about five miles south of Jerusalem. And if you look to the east at the high points of Bethlehem, if you look about 50 miles to the east on the other side of the Dead Sea, you can see Moab, right? You can see this area, kind of modern-day Jordan, if I have my geography right. Uh, so, so if you look this way, it's not like this unknown place in this unknown land. You can almost see this area from the hilltops of Bethlehem. So they're going to go out traveling all the way over to Moab. And the text says they went to the country and remained there, and it almost implies that they're only going to go for a short period of time. They're only kind of turning their back on their people and from the place God's given them for a short period of time to meet their needs. Uh, but as we all know, whenever we kind of turn away from God or we turn away from obedience to his ways for only a short amount of time to meet our needs, a lot of times that short amount of time turns into a very, very long amount of time. As Bill taught last week, you know, as you sin or as you turn away from God, you think you may only give up a little bit, but it ends up taking a lot. So with that context in mind, let's go to the next couple of verses in this story. So starting with verse 3, it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. Now, this would be a big deal in society today. I mean, if, if this happened, this is a tragic story, and this would be hard for anyone today. But at that time, this was a death sentence, an absolute death sentence. Uh, the, the men took Moabite wives, which was not necessarily condemned, but it was a bit frowned upon. Uh, if you guys remember, the downfall of many people in Israel was because they were either marrying or being influenced by uh, women who worshipped another god. And it wasn't necessarily the women's fault, uh, but, you know, you marry a woman and she says, hey, honey, you know, I, it'd really be nice to put that Asher pole up, you know, in our backyard. And then she gets really upset if you don't do it. And so you just, you, you cave to the pressure of the wife. Uh, and all of a sudden, you're just kind of worshiping your God and her God at the same time. Not a big deal. But you're not fully devoted to your God anymore. And over time, just like sandpaper that grinds on that, you just start turning further and further away from God. And so that happens a lot in the Old Testament. We read about it a lot. So these guys took these Moabite wives, uh, and tragedy strikes. We see that they've been there 10 years, and these guys have been married to these women probably the majority of that time for 10 years. And what's interesting about that is 10 years goes by and, and, and no heirs are produced. You know, there's no, no sons, no daughters produced. Naomi has no grandchildren. So we can assume from this text that uh, both uh, Ruth and Orpah uh, are most likely barren. You know, they, they can't have kids. And, and for <coughs> Naomi, if you put her in at the time with no man to... to protect her, no man to provide for her, uh, no sons to provide for her in, in, in her old age. Uh, she's kind of an outcast in that society at the time. I mean, she's a, an Israelite who's in Moab. I mean, just like the Israelites don't like the Moabites, the Moabites don't like the Israelites either. And she's a very vulnerable person in that society. And we'll see later on in the text how, how women are really taken advantage of in these situations. And so she is just really in a bad, bad situation. Uh, both her and her daughter-in-laws are in a pretty bad situation here. God made a way of how to deal with these situations in his law. 
If you think about how um, the law was delivered to the Israelites through Moses back in the desert, uh, God looked at the culture at the time and saw that this type of situation could occur with cultural norms during that time, and he tried to make a way to protect women, to protect these scenarios, to try to keep people from being in such vulnerable, desperate, hopeless situations. And I want you to, to understand what it was in the law that God provided because it's important in the rest of the story. So if you can, if you've got your Bibles open, uh, switch to Deuteronomy 25, uh, verses 5 through 10. This is, like I said, during the Exodus experience out in the wilderness. But this was part of the law that was handed down to Moses. It says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gates of the elders and say, My husband, husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. I'm lo- I, I, I do just enjoy some of the Old Testament laws. I kind of feel like we should implement that in Crossings Community Church. Um, not the marrying the, 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 the widow part, but you know the spit in the face. That's pretty cool. Uh, and she shall answer and say, Shows, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the man of the house shall be called, in, in all Israel, they shall call him the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So it's like just, you're going to have a bad reputation for the rest of your time in the village you're in if you don't own up and meet the responsibility. And this custom sounds very foreign to us, and it may sound a bit misogynistic you know, to us today, but this was a, a, a law that was given for protection, for, to make sure redemption could occur in these situations that were just hopeless at the time. And so don't try really hard not to look at it with a 21st century lens. Think about it at that time. This was a, a law that was very loving and compassionate to make sure people like Naomi in her situation, especially with the life expectancy of men at that time, people in her situation would be taken care of uh, in the body, in the family, in God's family. God's making sure there is a way. Uh, and one, one quick aside, I don't want us to feel like women are weak uh, at this time in society either. They're, they're really not. Uh, right before this story takes place, you know, we see a judge raised up to go and lead a massive military conquest, and that the judge was a woman named Deborah. Right? And we see some very strong women in all of biblical history, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, but, but I want you to see that this is just, they're vulnerable in society at this point in time, which was the reason for the law. So in this situation, Naomi is far away from home, uh, she's surrounded in a foreign land with people who don't like her because she's an Israelite. She has no hu- husband. She has no family to help her. She has no sons, no offspring. She's in a very, very tough situation. Uh, so for you guys, I want you to take a couple minutes at your table, and I want you to think about a situation in your life where you've just had, uh, you, you, you've been in a, you've had everything thrown at you, right? You've had the kitchen sink thrown at you. And I know all of you guys have been through some really, really difficult times uh, you've lost people you've loved recently. Uh, you, you, you've, you've lost jobs. You, you, you've, you've had health issues. You've had all kinds of things happen that are just really, really <clears throat> difficult. 
And I want just a kind of small mini lesson in this to, to help us understand how we deal with those horrific situations. And if you can, take a couple moments at your table, read verses 6 and 7 together, and see if you can figure out what was it that Naomi did. What were her first actions she took in the midst of this just tragic situation? So read 6 and 7, and we'll come back together. All right, anyone got an idea on this one? What was the, are there any action words you see that Naomi does in the midst of this situation? Anything you see, any words that stick out? Sorry, I thought I heard something. She got up. She got up. Uh, the ESV translation says, then she arose. Right? And just as I read that, it just kind of gave me chills. In the midst of what she's going through, hopeless, hopeless situation, a situation that I'll probably never have to deal with, nothing like that. Then she arose, right? She arose with her daughter-in-laws to the country of Moab to return from the country of Moab. And that word return is where we get our word repentance, right? And it's a bit of a symbolic word, right? She has turned away from God's blessing and walked towards Moab to get provision that she didn't think she could get in God's country. Yes. What are we supposed to think, though, that she also did this after she hears that, you know, Things back at home are pretty good again. Yep. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that in just a second. So, so she, 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 she gets up, she repents, she turns direction, and goes back. And so the, the legitimate question is, why, why? Why does she turn back? Well, I think a couple things. Two, one, in the midst of tragedy, there's one truth we always know, at least for the most part. 99.999% sure this is going to happen. One truth we always know. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. Right? The sun's going to come up tomorrow. So if you're, going to, if you're going to get back at it, if you're going to continue to live, you're going to live out your life, what you have to do is arise. Right? You've got to get up and put one foot in front of the other. Why does she feel she can do it? She has hope. Right? She has hope because what she's been in the fields, gleaning in the fields in Moab of all places. I guarantee you that wasn't a safe place for her to be. We'll talk about that later on in the text. Uh, and she hears whispers that God has restored the fortunes of the people back in Judah, right? That, that there's food again, and she returns. And we don't have time to get into all this today, but, but you can go through a lot of stories in the Bible where people in the Bible have escaped because of famine and gone back whenever prosperity returns to the people. Uh, but she returns, right? She puts one foot in front of the other. We always have to know in the midst of suffering, whenever everything is collapsing around us, and you're all going to be there if you haven't been already, you have to put one foot in front of the other and get up and keep on going. God uses our suffering for incredible works. Right? Gene taught on this a few months ago whenever we were in Philippians. God can use those times of suffering to do incredible things within our faith. It's, just, it's a really great opportunity for him to work with us, but we've got to do our part. We've got to keep one foot in front of the other. So let's keep reading in this text. And I want you to see what transpires between Naomi and her daughter, daughter-in-laws in this text. This is where we're, we're going to really get to what's a type of love that God's trying to show us in this text. So starting with verse 8, it says, But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. 
If I, should say, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? So I just want to stop there for a second. She's talking about that Levitical law, right, or that law we just talked about. You know, she has no sons to give them to be their redeemer, right? She has no one to offer them. Even if she got pregnant that night, they wouldn't be able to wait that long. She's just saying, I have nothing for you. Keep going here. She goes, no, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So there's just a few practical things going on in this text we need to make sure we understand. Naomi's pleading with her daughter-in-laws to go back to Moab, to return to their mother's house, to, to find another husband, to even go back to their gods. Uh, Naomi's not a perfect character in this story. To, to make your point, you know, Naomi's got some flaws in this story, but there's still a lot we're going to learn from her because we all have flaws. Uh, she, she's kind of looking past the devotion to her god by telling them to go back to, to, her, to their gods. Uh, but Naomi has no prospect for herself at all. For Naomi... Probably the best thing in her life that could happen to her is that those daughter-in-laws would stay with her, right? The best possible chances she has, she has of being prosperous or just being able to support herself is for these probably late teenage or early 20s women who are with her to help her through her life and to take care of her in her old age and to provide extra income sources or whatever they need to do. Her best hope is in her daughter-in-laws. She also believes in this text you saw that the Lord's hand has gone out from her. She actually feels like what she is suffering is a direct result of God. And we'll see that come up in next week's lesson a little bit. So I want to I put a, a pin in that until we get to it next week. Right now what I want to do is I want to focus on the exchange, this loving exchange between Naomi uh, and her daughter-in-laws. And I want to really contrast it from what we believe love is in the world. So you step back for just a second. I just want to, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time to discuss at the table, so we'll do this up, up at a high level here. But if you think about it, we all have heard this term about falling in love, you know, falling in love. And, and the way, you know, our media, our world, the books, all of our exposure is really talked about, it. it's almost like this mystical, emotional, magical thing that happens where you fall in love. And, uh, and once you fall in love, you know, the rest of world history works out just perfectly until you fall out of love. Right, until you fall out of love. And once you fall out of love, you know, all, all, everything's, everything is off the table, right? Uh, the world will tell us, you know, a few lies, right? It, that, that what we're wanting to be able to do is to make ourselves happy, right? Happiness is the most important thing possible in our lives. Nothing doesn't sound necessarily wrong, but it's actually a lie, right? That the most important thing in our lives is to be happy. And that if I am no longer in love in a situation, I need to just walk away from that situation. Because if I'm not in love, I'm not becoming happy, and now I can't fulfill my ultimate inward contentment. Uh, this, is a, this is a just prevalent view across all of our society today, and has been for a long time. This is nothing really new about that. Uh, but I always use that illustration of falling in love. You know, it makes you think there's this mystical, magical, emotional element of love. I truly don't think that is true, right? I truly don't think that is true. I, I think 
I think that if uh, we think that we can fall in love, then it has to be very logical that we could fall out of love, and that that could be a justification for whatever decision we make. But the Bible teaches something very, very different about love. Love is not an emotional response to something. It's not an affectionate response to something. The Bible actually teaches us that love is a decision. Love is a commitment. Uh, it's a very <coughs> intentional act that we go through that, that is not based on a feeling. Uh, whenever we're, we're kind of out in the world and we've been taught to trust our feelings, this whole you know, idea of love being a decision sounds very, very foreign. I'm getting a lot of confused looks on, on your all's faces right now. It's a very foreign concept to anyone you might talk to outside of the church walls. But think about that, that whole philosophy of trusting our feelings, right? If, if we were to trust our feelings as we fall in love or trust our feelings as we go about our way, think about just how many horrific decisions you would make uh, if you trusted your feelings for every decision uh, in your life. I know if I trusted my feelings on a daily basis, I would have probably left my wife, left my kids, left my job, left my responsibilities, all at some point in time in my life. There was one point in time that I was living in Australia uh, that had I trusted my feelings at that given moment, I probably would have ended up with a tattoo of a kangaroo wearing an Aussie Rules football jersey holding a Foster's beer can, right? There, there was, you know, our feelings are going to lie to us, right? The Bible teaches us something about something much, much deeper. It, 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 it talks about love being a commitment that is not based on circumstantial happiness or circumstantial feelings. It's much, much different. And we see that here in this text. In verse 8 in this text, you'll see it says these words. Uh, it says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord deal kindly with you. And there is no good English translation for this ancient Hebrew word. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Uh, what the word is, and you'll see it on your note page, is a word called hesed. Hesed, H-E-S-E-D has said it's a very unique combination in the Hebrew language that combines love and loyalty. Some Bibles you may have may translate it as steadfast love, which I think is a better translation than deal kindly, but it's this unique combination of love and loyalty. Uh, it also combines commitment with sacrifice. Commitment with sacrifice. What has said is, is a one-way love. Right? It's a decision that you make to love, no matter the circumstances, no matter what is happening on the other side of that equation. Hased is an equation that does not have to balance. It does not have to equal whatever you are taking out of the scenario. You are making a decision that I am going to love, no matter what happens on the other side, no matter what happens on the, the, the person you are showing that Hased love to, I am going to continue to love. It's a commitment, a decision that I am making. It's independent of how the person is treating me at the time. It's independent of how happy I may feel in any given moment. It is completely independent of that fact. Does that not sound absolutely radical, though, from everything that we experience in our world today? Does that not sound just absolutely radical? Yeah. It is. You think, about, you think about the intent of marriage. It, just for a second, if we go down that road, and we've got all kinds of people in here. We've got people who have never been married. We've got people who've been married for a very long time. Uh, we've got people who are widowed um, or widowered. Widowered, yes. We, we've got people who've lost their spouse. 
Uh, we've got people who've been divorced and remarried, people who've just been divorced. We've got every situation in this room we have. What we, the intent of God's use of marriage is not for us to be happy. Right. It's, it, I was talking to the very first. Uh, yeah. It, Amen. Truth bears that out. Right. I mean, it's uh, you know, let's just look at the evidence of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Just this is these, these are the situations where I wish I wasn't podcasting. But I remember I was sitting down with a couple, the very first wedding ceremony I ever gave uh, here at the church. And I, I refused to tell that couple it was my very first wedding ceremony I'd ever officiated. Uh, but I remember I talked to them for a couple of hours before um, when they were planning their wedding. I was talking about what, what the role of marriage actually is. And it's a good, I'm glad you brought this up because the role of marriage is for God to bring two people together so that through the two of them, he can accomplish more through them than he could have but with them on their own. It's, it's about much more than happiness. Will happiness be a byproduct of that marriage? Yes, probably. We sure hope so. Happiness, happiness may be difficult because... Because whenever that cancer diagnosis comes, or whenever that heart attack comes, whenever, whenever there's no money in the bank account, it is, it is difficult to be happy. Happiness is circumstantial, but joy is not. Uh, a, a, a marriage that is committed to God, joy is a byproduct that can withstand all of that. Happiness may not be there. And on any given day, your feelings could lead you to the other woman. Her feelings could lead to the other man. You know, we, we can't trust our feelings of the world. Uh, just before this, I was at Starbucks, and, and the little barista was turning around, uh, and they had this beautiful quote on their shirt that, that pretty much said, trust your feelings, trust yourself, don't let anyone tell you not to trust yourself, be who you want to be, do what you want to do, right? It was pretty much that quote. And I'm saying, well, that's, that's, that's the, that is the motto of the world. And when you do that, that's just like being in an ocean on a tide completely adrift. There is nothing to anchor you down at all. Love is about something much, much deeper than that. And what normally happens in the midst of this love is that we will go through pain, we will go through suffering, we will get knocked down, and that decision, that commitment to love across can never waver in the midst of that. And what I think is beautiful, and the reason I thought it was so telling that all, so many of you guys raised your hand that the most pure form of love you experience involve pain was because when pain comes and suffering comes it refines us it absolutely refines us and you can see past the selfishness you can see past our own corruption you can see past all those things that can make it good for us to love you can see past all that and see god's pure form of love you can see hesed right you can see it and and i just love that ancient hebrew text that brings together these themes themes that are, that are very altruistic, but so foreign in our society today. So I want you to get to keep wiping away, wiping away what the world is teaching you about love right now, because God's got something much greater in mind, much, much greater in mind, but much harder as well. He offers not happiness, not necessarily uh, ease, not, not a pain-free life. He says, no, I want you to step into the pain, step into the suffering. I will use it. I will have you love in a way that makes no sense into the world. And so many people are going to look around and say, what in the world is that? Right? And that's why when we say we want to be a church that is known by love, that's the type of love we want to be known about. Uh, whenever I talk about being known by love to a lot of my friends in the city, uh, some of my friends who do not know God, uh, they go, it's really cool that you guys are being so nice to people, right? 
And, and, and then let's not, you know, it's not their fault, right? But, but they're saying it's really cool that you're being nice, that you're taking care of some social needs. I'm like, yeah, that's not the love that we're talking about. But the love that we're talking about to be known by love should look radically different from what you've experienced in the world and even from what we've practiced on a day-to-day life. But that's my challenge to you today uh, for the rest of this week as we dig into this text is can we be known by this type of love? Think about one relationship that's in your life right now uh, where you are in a loving relationship with that person. Are you expecting to get the Paul McCartney I'm going to get in more trouble from my dad about quoting the Beatles on this, but are we, are we expecting to get the Paul McCartney relationship quota out of this, right? The, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Is that what we're expecting from the relationship that we're in? Or are we saying, I don't care what it is that you're giving me in return. I'm going to love you with a love that does not make sense in this world, that has no expectation, that is one way, that will love through suffering, that will love through pain. Because what we're going to find in this text is that's the love that God shows us on a daily basis. That's the love that God showed us on the cross. That's the love that God's going to show us through Naomi, through Ruth, through Boaz. He's going to show it very clearly. And in this text today, we see Naomi doing that with her daughter-in-laws. Because the best thing in the world for her, what would make her happiest, what would make her most successful in life is to hold them tight and to take them back to her land with them. But she's saying, I love you more than that. I'm going to show you his said. I'm going to be loyal to you, knowing it's going to hurt me. I'm going to send you back because it's the best thing for you. But then something crazy happens, right? And we're going to get into next week. We're going to talk about the decision Ruth makes that many scholars would say is one of the greatest acts of faith in all of the Bible. Uh, so next week we'll, we'll, we'll come back, enjoy the uh, next chapter of the book of Ruth. Let me pray for you guys as we get out. Father, thank you again for these men, and I thank you for our church. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example that uh, you've given us in this story. Uh, We ask that your wisdom would come through this text, that your your knowledge, your love uh, would, would just be evident for these men. And we don't ask it so that we feel better about ourselves. We don't ask it so that we can feel like we're being good Christians today. We want you to transform us. We want to be known by love, not for our pride and not for our egos. We want to be known by love so that others will know who you are and will come into your family. We want to be known by that kind of love. May you watch over us and protect us and be with each of these men in the midst of the pain and suffering of life that I know they are going through. May you watch over them and protect them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.